If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. No prime ministers, cabinet ministers, or world leaders of importance in the hammer this week. Just a normal array of Hollywood stars and crews creating their own productions. Here's Scott Thompson. That's your real drama. Leave the drama up to the professionals. Politicians, leave the drama to the professionals, please. On any given day, there's probably a half a dozen crews around the hammer uh, filming the next big thing. All right. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Uh, welcome aboard. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fray. Sad news over the weekend. We were talking about it uh, earlier. Uh, Hurricane Hazel, uh, the mayor of Mississauga for 36 years. I remember the train derailment back as far as that. Uh, sorry, I might be dating myself here. And... Uh, uh, you know, tough as nails, frank, fair, some of the words used to describe uh, Hurricane Hazel. But let's speak with Bonnie Crombie, who is, of course, the current mayor for the city of Hamilton and followed uh, Hazel uh, into office after she retired. Bonnie, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I hope you're I hope you're having a reasonably good day considering these news, this news. Hi, Tom. Yes, just to harken back, that train derailment was uh, 1979 and Hazel had become mayor in 1978, so was shortly thereafter she became mayor, and I think it really propelled her uh, to, you know, for, into the position she was, that take charge kind of person. So let me first say my condolences to the McCallion family and all their close friends, early on behalf of my council and team, the staff here at City Hall who knew her for the 36 years she was here. Um, and of course, all the residents of Mississauga, our hearts go out to the family. She was the matriarch of our city and the architect of our city as well. She built Mississauga um, in her vision. How did she get it done? She's a force of nature, Tom. We call her Hurricane Hazel. It's Hurricane sorry, Hazel. sorry, Bonnie. It's Scott. Job it, done. <laughs> Bonnie, sorry, it's Scott. It's not Tom. Um, uh, Tom's oh, producer. But sorry. no, that's no problem. That's no problem. I understand. You're talking to a lot of people today. Um, so how did she? Because many times we hear lots of talk, no action, but that certainly wasn't Hazel. Scott, you're absolutely right. Hazel was all action in few words. Once she made a decision, she just moved forward and look out. We all know how direct she was. She'd take on anyone. She made prime ministers and premiers and ministers of the government recoil. We all know that she never slept because she'd be sending staff emails at four or five in the morning and maybe, you know, at two, three in the morning as well. She'd get up and have her tea. And by six o'clock, she assumed, Scott, that everyone in the world was up and it was time. And she'd be making phone calls to Ottawa or Queens Park to give them a piece of her mind. So she wanted to get the job done as only she knew how, which was very head on and direct. So you said something. I was watching uh, uh, you talking to uh, the media and such earlier today, and you said a statement that is so true. You thought of her sort of like the queen, that she would just be around forever. I didn't mean the queen of Mississauga, but she certainly was that. I meant uh, yeah. Her Majesty, yeah. the Queen of England. Yes. We always, she was omnip omnipresent. She she was everywhere. In our, it was the only queen I knew, and, and Hazel was the only mayor many of us knew, and we all thought she would always be there, even in retirement. She was still a, a strong presence in Mississauga at community events, at parades. E e Hazel was everywhere. Um, and, you know, I just never really expected to feel this sad that, you know, that she and that she would pass. I mean, I thought she would always be present. And now that she's passed, oh, she will live on, of course, and all our memories are and we will cherish her memory. But it, it, it felt, Scott, like she she wouldn't leave us, that she hmm. would always be with us. And I guess she will be. She'll always be the queen of our hearts. And in the news again, just last week, uh, talking about Greenbelt issues. Unbelievable. Um, you followed her. What was it like to walk in that trail that had been blazed? I mean, I can see some, ben well, I can see some benefit for that, but I can also see, woo, you know, <laughs> following that isn't very easy. Very big shoes to fill. I heard that in each and every day for the past eight years. Yeah. As 
as the new mayor of Mississauga. Very big shoes to fill indeed. And of course, it, it's a different era today and Hazel herself, um, you know, wanted someone of a different, of a, a younger generation, of course, wanted a woman. And we can talk about her support for women in business and women in politics next, but very big shoes to fill. You know, I knew I would always be compared to Hazel and how she, how she administered, how she managed the city and, and also the the activity we knew her as someone with limitless boundless energy and activity who would appear at every community event every banquet every celebration every picnic and parade so you know that there would be those comparisons as well well we could always count on hazel to attend right so there wasn't a day that went by that i didn't think what would hazel do <laughs> You know, it is. It, we often hear that it's difficult for women in politics, and I'm sure it was Hazel, but you wouldn't think so. How, what can women in politics and, and in leadership roles in general learn from Hazel McCallion? Well, you know, she was a, a trailblazer uh, like none other. Let's be honest, in her era, uh, she broke so many boundaries and broke that glass ceiling. She shattered it. Um, let's start off with her being the fir first well-known female hockey player um, that yeah. got paid to play hockey on the ice um, and then moved to Toronto to work with a big construction company and actually built the Four Sisters power plant that she later took down uh, along with Dalton McGinty when she was mayor. So boundaries and ceilings didn't seem to apply to Hazel. She was cut from a different cloth. But as a result of that was so inspirational to all of us and let many of us believe that because Hazel could do it, we could too. You know, and she encouraged us all to step up in business or to put your name on that ballot, run for office. She encouraged all of us to all run for office. So many of the women I know. Um, and uh, we knew that as a result of her kind of a take no prisoners kind of attitude. I'm Hazel McCallie and get out of my way. You know, we could, we could, uh, we've all benefited from those doors that she opened. Did you ever disagree or see someone disagree with her? Cause again, you said different time here when you could agree to disagree, but still challenge be Frank. So, you know, I have seen people disagree with her and she certainly put them in their place. Um, I had some disagreements with her, um, since I was mayor, but as I say, they just hearken back to her being from a different era. You know, she, when Uber first came to light, by example, um, you know, we were being lobbied for uh, these transportation companies that operated differently. Mm -hmm. Mind you, we had re heavily regulated the taxi industry, yet I know that our residents wanted this service. And of course, she under she was very closely tied to the taxi industry, and as was I. And, you know, we had that discussion, shall we call it, Scott, <laughs> about mm. the merits of both. So we didn't, we didn't align on that one. And there have been others, but, but, you know, I always valued her advice. I always sought it. And there may have been some, uh, sometimes that I, 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 I thought differently, but I always sought her advice. And I, I'll tell you what, uh, when she praised us, me, uh, and my team here at council, I knew we were on the right track as well. And mm. I, I never felt more validated than when Hazel said we were doing a great job. And, you know, throughout, throughout COVID, of course, towards the end, you know, people were upset with lockdowns and upset with vaccine mandates. And I would call her off and say, what are you hearing, Hazel? And she said, you're on the right track, Bonnie. You mm. keep at it. Keep going. You're doing the right thing. I'm proud of you. You keep going. And so to hear those words was very assuring, you know, when people were pushing back to some of the long lockdowns that we had and some of the mandates that were in place. Bonnie Crombie with us, Mayor, City of Mississauga, talking about the life and times of Hazel McCallion, who passed away over the weekend, the age of 101. Bonnie, again, our condolences. Uh, be well and uh, honor honor the memory. Tell you the plans. Tell you the plans for the upcoming funeral. So yeah, let me just say it was an honor honor to serve with her, and I really feel mentored by her. She was a friend, a close friend, advisor, and inspiration. You can hear in my voice, I have a little bit of laryngitis. That's the only reason that kept me from her in this past week because I couldn't visit. So what we have done is set up a, a book of condolences 
for our residents or any resident who wishes to, to come in and sign either in the Great Hall at City Hall or any of our community centers, or they can do it online with Turner and Porter. And later this week, Hazel will lie in state here um, at City Hall and people can come pay their respects. And then there will be a state funeral. Um, uh, the, the Premier called me yesterday and uh, told me he wanted to host a state funeral. And of course, we're honored. And so there will be at a large Mississauga venue, a state funeral. I would put my money on her birthday, which is also mm. Hazel McCallion Day, which is also Valentine's Day, February 14th. <laughs> but you never know. It's based on the availability of that venue. And then the family will hold a private uh, service and burial uh, at her local church as well. But there Bonnie are opportunities to, for the public to show their love and admiration. And I encourage them all to please come forward. Bonnie Crombie with us, Mayor for the City of Mississauga. Bonnie, thanks so much for the time and sharing the stories. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Scott. I'm pretty excited about this. And uh, you might remember we've had David Adames on, CEO of, Na- of Niagara Parks Commission, and talk about the Power Station uh, exhibit. And it's not an exhibit, man. It's a museum. It, it's just, it's it's incredible to see this. And I remember being a kid, like in the early 70s, mid-70s, and going to Niagara Falls with my parents and doing the Maid of the Mist thing and whatever, and then pointing. See that building right there? That's the power station. That's where all the power comes. And it was just mesmerizing to me because you had no idea how it worked. Uh, And of course, it was decommissioned a few years ago. Uh, But, you know, from 1905 to 2006 or seven, I believe it was, it, it, it was generating power. And to think that this long row house kind of looking thing, which basically has um, uh, 11 uh, generators in it, sort of looks like uh, you open up a carton of eggs, except one of them's missing. So it's just they're all in a row like that. And then down from each one is a shaft that goes like six stories with a turbine on the other end and a tube beside it like a giant paper towel roll or thing you have your Christmas wrap in goes alongside it six stories down. And then elbows at the bottom and powers the turbine. Boy, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But my goodness, to see what they did at the turn of the century is just mesmerizing. David Adames with us now, CEO of Niagara Parks Commission. David, thanks for the time. As you can tell, I was quite excited with the little tour that uh, we had. Well, I just love how you described the Niagara Parks Power Station. You described it exquisitely. It's it's it amazes me that again it's such a simple idea you know back to the the days of the the grist mills and the wheat mills you're harnessing the river you're turning something to generate whatever but to think that's the basic concept but then the engineering feat to absolutely do this and go down six stories and, and again for some reason I didn't fathom that as a kid that, that that's what it was actually happening I just thought you know there's a wheel somewhere and then it goes back out I had no idea that it dropped that distance and to be doing that kind of work in engineering at the turn of the century that's something well as you're describing it's very much uh, an iceberg isn't it where you can see the uh, above street level part of the uh, the beautiful architecture along the niagara parkway but below uh, all of the workings of that power station and this was something really new this was the first hydroelectric power station built on the canadian side of the niagara river it was what's called a run-of-the-river hydro station. So they harnessed the power and flow of the upper Niagara River. So water came into the power station, did its job, and then was expelled at the, in the lower Niagara River. So you would have seen and you would have followed the flow of the water when you visited on the weekend. Uh, so down the, the elevator, through the wheel pit, through what was called the tail race originally. Now we call it the tunnel. Then you came out to a beautiful new viewing platform uh, to see the lower Niagara River. Okay, what I didn't, uh, what also I didn't realize, so uh, we get in, you know, you do the tour, and it's just fabulous, and then the last thing you do is you get in the elevator, and you you go down, <laughs> and you can see, literally, the the generating shaft, uh, the shaft, and, and, and the penstock, I believe, which is this 10-foot in diameter tube that goes all the way down, and then you get to the bottom, you're in this massive arch tunnel, and and you can hear a little bit of water coming down, so it just adds to the atmosphere. But what I didn't appreciate, David, was how long that tunnel is. Because if you look at where the power station is up top, and the tunnel basically comes out underneath the, the Table Rock restaurant. That, that's right. So the tunnel itself is 670 meters or 2,200 feet. 
So it's a nice walk. Uh, it's a beautiful brick-lined tunnel, 5.7 million bricks were used. All original are in place. Uh, so it's uh, 20 feet wide, 20 feet foot, uh, sorry, 25 foot high uh, tunnel. So a really uh, intriguing experience down there. Fully accessible with the pathway, as you saw uh, on yeah. the weekend as well. So you, again, you follow the flow of water. Uh, and even that elevator ride, to your point, you're seeing all the industrial architecture as you go down, uh, down the elevator shaft, and then, of course, arriving and, and hearing the groundwater in the wheel pit. So, so we diverted the groundwater, so it's nice and safe. Um, but it Yeah, I don't want to paint a picture here that it's, you know, <laughs> it is very beautiful, very beautiful. It sure is, it sure is. And and to come out the other end, and you know, when there's someone standing there and they're going to give you like a poncho, you know, you're in for an experience. <laughs> and then to get there at the base of the falls, where you're really, you're literally at the water line of the Niagara River, and to literally look up over your shoulder and just see this, this, the power of this water coming down. And of course, you're you're soaked because it's you know you're right at where the the water literally hits the ground. But what an an, an incredible experience and. Again, it's amazing how, to me, how that tunnel kind of arced along. Because there's at one point when you're doing the walk, you look back, you can't see the elevator, and yet you can't see the opening at the other end. And I'm thinking, how long is this thing? But, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, so lots of moments of mystery. That moment of anticipation, that last bend in the tunnel, you can see that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And then emerging out on that viewing platform. So a never-before-seen perspective of the gorge wall, the current in the Niagara River, you look right, you see the, the iconic Horseshoe Falls, you look straight yeah. ahead, you see the American Falls and, and Terrapin Point, uh, our U.S. friends across the way. Look further to the left, you see the Rainbow Bridge. It's really special down there, isn't it? It is unbelievable. It is an incredible experience, and it was busy, too. We were there for like an 11 a.m. tour, and it was, it, there were a lot of people coming and going. So what's next? And we've only got like a minute left. What is next for you? How do you, what, what's the next stage of this? Because it, it just seems, wow, there's a, you could even do so much more if you wanted. That's right. So we have the uh, control room on the second floor. We haven't opened that to the public yet because we do need to make it to build a code. So we'll be looking for some more funding uh, once we get our cash flow going, which we are now with the uh, power station fully open. So that's our, probably our next stage. We'll also add temporary exhibits to tell more of the story of hydroelectric power generation, science, technology, engineering, and math. The people who worked uh, in that power station will have a great video content series coming out very shortly in the station. So those are a couple of quick topics. And then the other two power stations that we have, Toronto Power across the street from Niagara Parks Power Station and the former Ontario Power Generating Station in the Lower Gorge, we have a request for proposals process open now until mid-May, and then we'll see what comes in, in from the uh, private sector for uh, adaptive reuse of those power stations. Wow, that's great. And you know, uh, we, we didn't even touch on, because we're out of time, but you were, as you were saying, the history and, and the discussions between Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla and all that sort of stuff, which is a whole different uh, avenue to this. But And a great exhibit, David. Boy, you guys have just done an incredible job, and uh, good luck with everything moving forward. Oh, thanks so much, Scott, and we really appreciate all, the, all, all of your listeners who have visited the power station, and we know many more to come. David Adame, CEO of Niagara Parks Commission, did the tour of the Niagara Power Station. Boy, I highly recommend it. It is a fascinating museum, a fascinating step back in time. You know you're bored and waiting for the racing season when uh, you're watching old um, stuff that you've saved from last year. And then, you know, you, you call up Eric Thomas and start, you know, talking racing and, and hopefully it'll speed uh, the waiting time up, you know, before uh, the green flag waves again. Uh, you can hear him on the Raceline Radio Network every Sunday night right here on CHML. Eric Thomas is with us and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Are you bored yet? Are you like, I know the show's already started and you're rocking and rolling and stuff, yeah. but are you chomping at the bit here? Well, yeah, we are. Uh, before we get started here, I'm, I want to let you know that you're probably going to hear a couple of bumps and bangs and drills and grindings and things because I'm, I'm, we're getting our basement um, bathroom renovated here uh, by the crack crew, and it's right next to where I am here. So <laughs> if, you hear, if you hear some banging, and, and as I'm not trying to escape here, it's that the crew is working on the bathroom and making a little bit of noise. No, we're, we're good. I mean, we... We, we've just finished our, our 30th anniversary season with 48 shows, and then we do the four best of shows, which you hear here on, on uh, Global News Radio 900 CHML, Sunday nights, 8 o'clock, and, and through the Christmas season. And, and then we just got going. Now we're just, I'm ramping up show number four. We just, you know, number three is already, uh, you know, in the, in the books, and we 
had it on last night uh, with, with Stuart Friesen and, and NASCAR legend Herschel McGriff. So we just got through the Rolex 24 at Daytona, which actually gets the North American season going with the, the big sports car extravaganza. And 61 cars started that race at Daytona. 61 cars, all the different classes of sports cars that there are. And of course, now with this new hybrid technology, more manufacturers than ever before are getting involved in this thing. So you've got, it was the biggest crowd they've ever had probably in the history of the Rolex for this weekend, much more manufacturers. And something else that I discovered in talking to people like Chip Ganassi, and, and you're going to hear some of that sound coming up next week on, on, on CHML on Raceline, is the fact that for the first time that anybody can remember tickets for the 24 hours of Le Mans that they do later in the summertime uh, has been sold out already. And here it mm. is. <laughs> Only January, so the interest in sports car racing is certainly becoming, you know, quite, uh, quite, quite good and quite vibrant, right along with uh, with the resurgence of um, of, F, of F1. So, yeah, we we leave the year for those four weeks, but man, they go fast, and we're already diving back in. So no, I, there's there's no time to get bored. I guess the short answer. How do you explain the interest? Because um, you, you know, certainly we've talked about the Netflix series for F1, uh, but people yep. seem to be more interested in that, and even sports car racing. I talked to Ron Fellows about that last year, and this right. seems to be a segment that is that is really growing. How do you explain the interest of it? Because you know, many will say, you know, racing's the old days, blah blah blah, but there's it's still it's still drawing crowds. Well, I think I, I, I kind of touched on it because the manufacturers now there is this uh, this this move, whether you like it or not. It's going to have to come eventually. It won't happen as soon as the environmentalist wackos and the politicians are happy to believe that we're going to have to go all battery by 2030. But the technology with hybrids, and we have hybrids in our families. Formula One cars are hybrids. Uh, train locomotives are hybrids. This technology, I-, I think, is going to have to be embraced or something smaller in terms of hydrogen. It just can't all be battery. But there's a battery component in there, and the manufacturers are getting smart and saying, look, you know, the, the, the racing game has been used as a test platform and also a presentation platform to people who buy cars saying, well, you know, it was the old adage, win on Sunday, sell on Monday. If they can build good race cars, they've got to build good passenger cars. And the tire manufacturers are right along with that. So with the sports car thing and the hybrid stuff and the, and, and the different sources other than internal combustion and gasoline, the manufacturers are in there. And people also like the sports car idea because of the simple fact that a Porsche looks like a Porsche, an BMW looks like a BMW, right? IndyCars don't do that. The NASCAR stuff, a little closer, but the sports cars look like what you buy. They're a lot more powerful and certainly jacked up a whole lot, but there's that uh, assimilation of of what you've got in in your driveway, and that's one of the reasons why sports car racing is becoming more and more popular. And the guys that were Roger Roger Penske and, and... and the involvement he's had in NASCAR and IndyCar and Michael Andretti now with a new team and Bobby Rahal's there. These are familiar names, guys who are getting into and Chip Ganassi, guys are getting into the sport. And the fans are loving that and saying, you know what, there must be something to this. They're watching it, they're liking it, and they're going out to see it too. So, as you said, sports car has various classes from uh, street level, it appears, right up to, um, you know, prototypes and such. Yeah. So, like, what yeah. is there still racing that starts with a car that is bought from someplace and then stripped down and made into a car? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, that essentially, when you go to the, your local dirt track and you're into the, uh, into the Hoosier stock division or the old bomber division or the late model division, there is an entry level for that. There's certainly a four-cylinder. But I mean, in in, in 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 sports car, though, are they still racing? Oh, are they still? No, sure. There's there's the Miata series. There's some lower formulae as well, where they're basically just stock, and you put a number on the side, and and that's pretty much it. And you know, there there are some entry level stuff involved in that. Uh, some of the um, some of the uh, the Hyundai's and some of the manufacturers that way. Certainly, at General Motors, you know, in their really small little subcompact cars, there are racing series like that you know, organized all over the world. And that's all part of the sports car movement. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's vibrant. I guess in what it, what it is, is it's always on road courses, too. So it's kind of like the entry stock car level that you might see at your dirt track, but you're doing road course stuff and you're doing club stuff as well. And there's all kinds of entry-level mm. stuff that you can, you can organize. And IMSA runs some of it, uh, and some of it is run as local club stuff. But there are ways of going about what you're talking about, just taking a stock car, putting numbers on the side and going having a little fun uh, and, and make sure you don't ding it up too much. You can't. Open it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's still taking it to the store. All right. right. Uh, never enough time to talk to Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, Sunday nights right here on CHML. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. We'll chat again soon.
We look forward to that, Scooter. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know we were talking all last week about uh, tanks on their way to Ukraine, also other advanced weapons uh, from the West. Uh, as a result of that, is that changing things in Russia and how they defend uh, their major cities? Uh, in other words, if you go to Russia, do you get the idea there's a war going on as if you were in Ukraine? Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, Center for European, Russian and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. End with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Matthew. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. How are you? Uh, so far, so good. So we've certainly know, Matthew, uh, Ukraine, uh, the tanks that were announced last week and, and, and more Western weapons that are hopefully going to arrive. What's it like in Russia? If you were to talk to a Russian citizen, are they aware that, that there's a war going on? Are, are they feeling any effects of this similar to what Ukraine is? So it's become more difficult to get a sense of what people think and what daily life is like in Russia since um, many correspondents have left. Um, but based on the reporting that we have, as well as my conversations with people who are who are there, who have been there recently, um, there have been some changes. Um, so uh, there has been a decline in the supply of consumer goods from the West. And of course, um, in other aspects of economic activity, this has also taken a toll uh, in terms of the supply of spare parts, in particular for for uh, more technologically um, sophisticated manufacturing. Um, people certainly are aware about the new restrictions on, on civic life and the risk of prosecution for saying the wrong thing, uh, as well as uh, of the stepped-up mobilization of soldiers. Although it has to be said that um, it appears that most of these uh, changes, although they might seem quite negative, are not being felt that much by the more politically mobilized contingent of Russians who, who are middle-class people in major cities like Moscow. Um, um, so we've heard that uh, that Russia may be playing key or placing key air defenses on on strategic buildings in the Russian capital. Is this all about uh, defending Ukraine against Russia, or will this will this war move to Russia? Will it enter Russia? Well, I think it's very clear that um, the uh, Western allies of Ukraine don't want. Um, Ukraine to undertake major military operations against Russia, and certainly not against civilian areas, which would which would be contrary to uh, international law and would result in Ukraine losing a lot of its support. Um, at the same time, it's already um, been uh, there's already been an evolution in terms of Ukraine's um, attacks on um, places like like um, air, air force bases or other kinds of uh, military industrial sites within Russia. It's not always clear exactly how they've been attacked, but there have been a number of cases of explosions. In some cases, drones seem to have been involved, and others perhaps sabotage. So um, there's no doubt that Ukraine does have the capacity to hit targets within Russia and is increasingly doing so. What about Russia's uh, uh, fallout, the, the, the Russian fallout of the announcement that tanks are, are, or more tanks are being supplied? Does that, does that trigger anything? Does that step anything up for Russia? I think it's a signal to Russia of a very negative kind from the West that they intend to continue backing Ukraine, including with um, tanks that are needed to enable it to to conduct offensive operations. So not just to defend itself against further um, incursions and against its its territory and sovereignty, but to actually try to uh, reconquer, or let me say, rephrase that, to to retake or liberate areas that that um, have been occupied by Russia. So it, it certainly met with a very negative reaction from the Russian official press and, and uh, pro-Kremlin commentators um, who claim that it's an escalation of, of the West, um, what they see um, as the West's uh, war against Russia. Can, can Ukraine take back its territory from Russia? Will it be happy with that? And what would that say if all of a sudden they kick them out and then stop? Don't advance beyond that. Well, um, they already have taken back quite a bit of the territory that Russia initially conquered. Um, so uh, Russia's territorial control of Ukraine actually peaked um, last spring, and Ukraine managed to claw back about half of, uh, of uh, those territorial losses. So the remaining, the remaining territory um, is believed to be harder to access, and the Russians have also been um, very rapidly constructing a series of internal fortifications and barriers. Uh, nonetheless, many people who are informed do seem to think that a Russian, that a Ukrainian offensive 
uh, is possible and that Ukraine could retake a significant portion, if not all, perhaps, if not perhaps all of the territory that it's lost, um, although it probably would be more difficult than the territorial gains that Ukraine has made so far. Mm. Matthew Light with us, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Bye now. Canada is not the only Western country facing serious challenges when it comes to military recruitment, uh, but the Chief of Defence Staff says that the issues raise concern about potential threats to democracy. Uh, in an interview with the West Bloc's Mercedes Stevenson, General Wayne Ayers said Canada was uh, Canada's ongoing recruitment and modernization challenges mean the military would be hard-pressed to do anything more than simply meet its NATO pledges, and it's not alone. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprec with us, Professor both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen Queen's University Fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Christian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, indeed. A pleasure to be back. Uh, great to have you back, Christian. Uh, what is the attraction for young recruits, men, women, who want to join uh, the military? What is what is in it for them? What is the military offering them? And is it what it used to be? Well, the military is arguably Canada's most prominent and arguably its most important foreign policy instrument. So if you believe in this country, people always talk about service, but ultimately uh, this is a service uh, to the interests of Canada and representing uh, those interests more broadly. It is also, if you look at an organization that makes a difference in many places where other organizations simply can't go uh, because the, min- uh, the military can provide uh, opportunities to people who are in serious distress, whether in Canada or abroad, uh, with exceptional capabilities. And it is, of course, the only organization in the country that is subject to what is known as unlimited liability. That is to say, where somebody can be ordered into harm's way. That shows that as the profession of arms, it holds a very unique uh, status within in any society, in particular, as you point out, within a democratic society, because in Canada in particular, we take democracy for granted and we don't realize that democracy ultimately has to be defended, especially when it is under duress in so many parts of the world today. And of course, over the years, decades, what have you, we've seen less and less interest, perhaps funding and such. Uh, we certainly know the, the discussion of the F-35 and how long that has been. W- what does a lack of equipment or lack of up-to-date equipment, what does that mean for recruitment? How does that stifle it? Look, anybody who wants to join an organization wants to join an organization that is modern, that is well-postured, that is well-led, that has an attractive institutional culture, uh, that has inspiring people with budgets that allow it to do new and innovative things, in particular when you ultimately may have to put your own life on the line in that organization. And so the, the, the challenges around Uh, sustainment of the organization and reconstitution of the organization necessarily wear heavily on the uh, on the recruitment component and so that is ultimately issues that the military in and of itself cannot fix because those are decisions that are political decisions that the federal government makes that the minister cabinet and the prime minister ultimately make and that they need to budget for in the federal budget Uh, and so it is ultimately for them to ascertain just how important the Canadian Armed Forces are, but if you look at every self-respecting democracy in this world, um, they have a serious military to be able to assert their interests on a global level. That doesn't necessarily mean having to show up with things that necessarily always go boom, but it is, of course, a capability Mm. that unfortunately is necessary uh, in a world where authoritarian states and non-state actors um, are uh, posing serious challenges. How do you reverse this trend and, and recreate that interest? Is it a case of a campaign and, and more money, we need you. What, how do you change this? How, how, do you, how do you prove that you're serious about this? Look, that's a great question. You know, we've had 20 years of benign neglect here of the Canadian Armed Forces. So this is not something you're going to turn around in a week, a month or a year. It's going to require uh, very uh, systematic attention to the organization 
by political leaders, by the senior civilian leadership and the senior military leadership to uh, to turn around those uh, those fortunes uh, and the reputation and image that the Canadian Armed Forces has in Canadian society. And that's why um, the Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, General Wayne Eyre, is putting both the governments and Canadians on notice that in the way the organization is currently constituted and sustained, uh, it is not able to, to do all the heavy lifting that either the government or Canadians might want it to do, that it is barely posture to do the minimum necessary in order to be able to uh, defend the country and engage in domestic operations if Canadians are in distress, defend the continent and defend our allies. And so that uh, if the government intends for the organization to do uh, more or at least to keep doing what it is doing, uh, it needs to uh, have a demonstrate a serious political um, financial and policy commitment to the organization. You talked about uh, years of neglect, Christian. Is that interest now there? Uh, are the are the values changing? I mean, we've seen this in healthcare in Canada as people are looking at things differently. Are, are you seeing a change in attitude here? Are Canadians realizing that that we're failing here and we need to address this? So I think Canadians are increasingly realizing this, although I think um, in this country uh, we live uh, in, in, in such relative luxury compared to elsewhere in the world uh, yeah. that we have rather rose-colored uh, rose, rose glasses uh, when it comes to interpreting what is happening to the world and the importance of not just looking after our own, our own interests, but those of our allies and partners. Um, at the same time, I'm not sure that uh, we'll have to see how interested the government really is in the Canadian Armed Forces. I get the sense that the government is doing what it must, as many Canadian governments over the decades have done, uh, rather than what it should, because ultimately foreign policy and the Canadian Armed Forces don't get government's votes. Um, social policy, healthcare policy, environmental policy does. Uh, and so uh, this is always a struggle with governments to get them to actually be able to pay attention. And that's the luxury that we have, that in this country we don't face uh, existential, immediate um, security and defense challenges in the way much of the rest of the world does. But this is why Ken has always had an expeditionary posture, because we've always wanted to keep the problems of the world far away from our shores. And as we can see in recent months, we are even very poorly equipped uh, and, and postured to be able to do that any longer. Uh, there was some chatter, and I don't know if you heard this, and, and, and I don't have all the details. Uh, U.S. official earlier on uh, over the course of the weekend talking about that they see a conflict uh, coming up with China, a major scenario perhaps over Taiwan by 2025. Is that saber rattling? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, Scott, what you and I a year ago would have talked about uh, the prospect of Canada providing heavy arms, armored personnel carriers, artillery pieces, and tanks to an active conflict zone, let alone a country that is in hmm. an active conflict with Russia, highly unlikely. Defense is ultimately an insurance policy. And I think what we see here is we live in a very dangerous world and Ukraine is showing that we are very unprepared for this dangerous world. Now, if there is a conflict in the Indo-Pacific, that is probably a theater that is going to be fought out between the United States and China and perhaps some other allies. But it means that if the United States is going to be preoccupied in the Indo-Pacific, it means that countries such as Canada are going to have to do more in Europe and with Ukraine in order to provide some relief for the United States so that it can follow its obligations in the Indo-Pacific, which is why it is all the more important to reconstitute and sustain the Canadian armed forces so it can be there for our allies and partners and continue to defend our interests because resources are ultimately scarce and the Americans only have so many to get to go around themselves. I uh, can't let you go without asking you about what or didn't happen in Ottawa with the anniversary of the convoy and such. Only got a few seconds left. Is this something we should still be concerned about? Is this more about saying now the city of Ottawa is prepared? Well, I think we'll have to see for the wait for the report of the Rouleau inquiry, the Emergencies Act uh, inquiry uh, that held hearings all fall. But certainly, I think one of the things that will come out of this that we all learned is that our national security system is not fit for purpose and not postured for the 21st century, and that we're going to need to have to do some re serious rethinking on defense, security, and intelligence in this country.
Christian Leprac, professor, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for the conversation. Have a lovely afternoon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The World Health Organization uh, was talking earlier whether COVID-19 still represents a global emergency and have decided, this is a definition uh, definition thing, I think, more than anything, uh, that it still is for clarification on all of this and where we are and what this means moving forward. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor, uh, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you're doing well, too. I was happy to chat. So far, so good. So what was the significance of what the World Health Organization said today? Is this uh, about uh, more about a definition of, of what a global pandemic is as opposed to where we are? What's the reasoning behind this? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I don't think this was surprising to many people who are watching. There's a technical definition. It's a public health emergency of international concern. Uh, they felt that COVID-19 still met criteria for being a public health emergency of international concern. And that means that, you know, there's still a lot of viral transmission, a lot of viral evolution, um, inequitable access to things like vaccinations, especially in the most vulnerable, uh, inequitable access to therapeutics, especially for lower income countries. So I think they felt that there were still an emergency component to this. And I don't think that's outlandish whatsoever. It sort of signals to the world that COVID's not gone. It's still around. We still need to take it seriously. They also fully acknowledge, too, that we're in a much better place now than we were at other points during the pandemic. Uh, But there's still a bit of work to go. Uh, He talked about how uh, the world is nearing an inflection point. What does that mean? Uh, And uh, what does it say about where we are in this pandemic? Well, we're now at a phase, at least in Canada or many other places that have seen a lot of COVID over the last few years, where waves completely don't demolish our healthcare system or other sectors or uh, amount to a mass casualty event to the extent that it once did. Of course, COVID is still here. Of course, people still get sick. Sadly, some end up in hospital. Sadly, some die. It's terrible. It's still happening. But to a much lesser extent than before and also in the context of few mitigation efforts whereas before we had you know complete or much heavier lockdowns and and other major public health interventions so you know they're basically acknowledging that it's their words not mine there's less morbidity and less mortality uh in many parts of the world now than in earlier parts of the pandemic uh and i think that's helpful to recognize like we can't pretend that it's 2020 but in terms of you know, creating safer indoor spaces, ensuring people have adequate access or uh, enable access to vaccination and therapeutics, I think, yeah, there's still, there's still room for improvement. And remember, they're talking about the planet. This is the World Health Organization. So they're not just talking about hmm. Europe and high-income countries. They're really focused on everybody, including especially the low-income countries and low-middle-income countries. I'm using World Bank definitions here. We certainly know where China has been in their journey through all of this. Obviously, several weeks ago, there was concern about uh, increases there as they move to remove the restrictions and, 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 you know, there's travel, concerns of travel, this sort of thing. Has that started to subside? Have they, are they in a better place? I don't know. It's hard to know what's actually happening there. Sometimes you hear snippets that, uh, oh, we're mostly through this wave, but then you see uh, other clips of, you know, healthcare systems overwhelmed or enormous wait times for crematoriums. I mean, just thinking about the vast size of the country geographically, the sheer number of people that live there, the fact that there's dense urban areas, massive dense urban areas, but also rural communities, it will take time for COVID to percolate through a country of that size. So, my, this is just a guess, and it's just based on snippets of information. I'm not sure how accurate some of it is, but my my guess is that, yeah, it's, there's still a ways to go for this wave in China, unfortunately. 
Uh, and what about the message in regard to boosted? Uh, vaccinated, fully boosted, and had another journey with COVID again a few weeks ago. And and each time you get it, it's less and less than it was the were uh, the time before. That's for sure. But is it's it, talk about how imperative it is to keep up with those vaccines. Right. I mean, this is especially important in people who are at greatest risk of severe infection. So, you know, yes, of course, everyone can get COVID. Yes, of course, anyone can have more acute or more chronic manifestations of the virus. We all get that. But if you look at who's at the greatest risk of ending up in hospital or dying, it's clearly the people who are over the age of 65 and really obvious for people over the age of 80. I mean, there's data from every place on the planet showing the exact same thing. That is one of the greatest risk factors for severe infection. And if you look in Canada, we only have, you know, uh, people boosted about around half of people over the age of 65 uh, have their most recent booster. And I think we can improve on that front. If we, you know, obviously we can improve on multiple fronts, but that's the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, those are people at greatest risk of severe outcomes. Those are people who should be boosted. Remember, the vaccines do a Okay job, not nearly as good as they used to in terms of protecting against infection or onward transmission. They still have a little bit, but not nearly as much as it used to do. But they still do a remarkable job in terms of keeping people out of hospital and keeping people from dying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, getting sick is one thing, but how sick do you want to get? Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh with a staff physician, General Internal Medicine, uh, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Get your booster. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great day. Nice to chat. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The House of Commons back in session. And as you can imagine, it was as lively as ever as... uh, Everybody gets back at it, and um, and and the buns start to fly, <laughs> as we say. Uh, for his impression, let's get in. Uh, bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you're well too. So uh, I'm just watching right now uh, clips of the Prime Minister and NDP leader Jugmeet Singh uh, duke it out over health care. Obviously, Jugmeet Singh not happy with some of the reforms or whatever you want to call it, uh, innovations. The Prime Minister used that word um, as it directs more to public uh, administration of the or sorry, private administration of this public service and such. How does how does Jugmeet Singh square this when we all know theoretically he could bring down the government if he really wanted to? How does he how, how does he uh, ask for debates like this? And then they just kind of go unanswered. Well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's it's playing a, a theater that he thinks is going to be electorally uh, beneficial. Uh, I mean, I think he realizes that his base and, you know, part of the liberal base that he's going after with this kind of uh, uh, claim doesn't want an election, but will uh, respond positively to him uh, championing that position. So I think that's his triangulation. He feels he can do this, you know, without, uh, at this stage anyways, people saying, well, he's being a hypocrite because if he believes so strongly in this, he, he would bring down the government. So I think in, in that context, he sees this as uh, a useful way for him to be able to show that there's uh, some distance between himself and Justin Trudeau, and in a way that maybe will interest, uh, you know, jaded liberal voters or perhaps some green voters who are also considered uh, concerned about what's happening in healthcare. Uh, obviously, we know and we've heard and seen for three years what has been going on. Lots of we can't do the status quo. Uh, system needs to be rejigged, reform, innovation, whichever you want to call it. We can't do the same thing by throwing lots of good money after bad per se. How does how, how does he sell that? And saying we need to just keep pouring more money into it and, and bring more doctors and nurses into it. And, and basically the same thing that we've been doing for years. Does he need a bit more structure in this argument than just, you know, we can't go the direction they want us to go. We just need to keep adding more money to to the mix. Yeah, I think in the long run, it probably helps to have something that you can point to that's concrete and, uh, you know, captures people people's imagination. You know, I mean, in the short term, doing, you know, uh, cataracts and, and knees and hips outside of hospitals is probably not doing a lot, actually, in terms of the sort of deeper innovation that uh, people are looking for. So, you know, it doesn't have to push against that. But I think it's true if if your argument is always just uh, we can't do those kinds of changes, but it's not clear uh, in people's minds, well, what are the changes that you put forward and that might make a difference? Uh, yeah, people will begin uh 
you know, nodding off or uh, looking elsewhere <laughs> and, uh, you know, be willing to willing to take whatever changes uh, on the table, because at least that's concrete in a way that the opposition isn't. So, yeah, there, there needs to be proposition and not just opposition. And I think yeah, Canadians aren't really sure what the answers are, because it's, you know, 20 years uh, that people have been talking about them and kind of 20 years that governments and doctors haven't been able to make a lot of progress on them. Uh, obviously, in opposition, your job is to oppose. That's what you're supposed to do. Uh, however, in the end, is the reality here that it is going to be a combination of both? We hear uh, Jagmeet Singh criticizing Ford and, and I'm sure other conservative governments who are taking the provincial approach. They are. Yet there is news items on uh, today out of beautiful British Columbia who also have an NDP government that are virtually doing the same thing. H- again, how do you when everybody's in the same boat how do you how do you square it yeah i mean i think in that moment it's hard to uh, really capture uh, canadians uh, attention i mean i think canadians are aware uh, that they like having a public health care system they're also aware that the quality of that system has been going down and if we look at international comparisons yeah canada is not performing that well i mean better than the states but uh, not uh, compared to most other advanced industrial countries and so you know, there, uh, you know, we look to politicians to come up with some solutions. But to date, I think they're really kind of lost in the weeds of, of technical speaking. And I think part of it is uh, also an inability to to come up with a program that might have popular support sufficient to push past the kind of entrenched professional interests within, within the hospital sector uh, in order to push, you know, more thoroughgoing reforms and, for instance, primary care you know, or how we might deal with, you know, surgical backlogs, uh, uh, problems in cancer treatment and so forth. Uh, do you think we're at a turning point right now with healthcare and people shifting their perception of it? And do you think that w- this could lead to the, you know, the pendulum swinging or, or a turning point in other areas of politics? Uh, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about Hazel McCallion today and somebody said she just got things done, whether you agreed or disagree in the end. Uh, she consulted, she did her thing and then pushed it through, got it done. Do you see that happening? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I think people like the idea of politicians getting things done when they like what they're doing. <laughs> and so, you know, I think on something like this, like healthcare, which has been the, you know, policy area, which has been the hardest to reform, you know, across uh, all Western countries. I mean, people thought pensions were hard, but I mean, healthcare has been harder because, you know, people experience it uh, throughout their lifetime, throughout the lifetime of their family members in a very direct way. And so, yeah, I mean, I think people are are looking forward to change, but you know, if the change hits them the wrong way, uh, you know, you could see some pretty, I think, quick reversals and you know, push for governments to, uh, you know, make other choices. So, yeah, I think we're at a moment where something has to move because the results in Canada have been not uh, good in terms of healthcare. Um, but it's hard to know whether the first movers are ultimately going to be the last, you know, the direction uh, we end up going. I think a lot of it will have to deal with whether people. Uh, like the changes. And if they don't, uh, we've seen they're quite likely to make health care an important electoral issue and, and to push back against governments that they feel are moving the wrong way. Peter Gret, professor of political science, McMaster University. House of Commons is back and there's lots on the docket. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. All right, we've uh, we're talking earlier and, and listening to many tributes and accolades coming in for uh, former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion dying at the age over the weekend, one hundred and one, and even last week was still in the news as chair of the Greenbelt uh, Council talking about housing and how we should learn more about the green belt and and supported the housing uh, positions that are being put forth by the ontario government so working right up until and my goodness what an inspiration uh and 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 again uh, speaking of uh, inspirations order of canada ron foxcroft canadian businessman fox 40 world creator of the fox 40 whistle 40 ways of the fox flute transport uh it's all there and ron foxcroft with us now ron thanks for the time i hope you're well I hope you're well, Scott. And yes, uh, Hazel McGallion, uh, I'll tell you, she was my uh, event friend and economic development friend. I'm a, I'm a great advocate of the importance of economic development. And, and you know, uh, Hazel McGallion was the champion, was the queen of uh, economic development. And I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. You, you use the word inspiration. 
I had the opportunity to meet Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth in her apartment in Buckingham Palace, and I met Hazel McCallion many, many times at many events. Quite frankly, I was just as inspired, just as excited at the opportunity to spend some time with Hazel McCallion. In in particular, uh, Neil Everson, the late Neil Everson, who mm. was a economic development professional in, Hamil- in Hamilton and a champion. And he used to say to me, if I could be 50% as successful at economic development as Hazel McCallion, I would be a champion. And he asked me to speak at, at an event in Toronto to 1,200 economic development professionals from all across North America. Well, I got up to speak, and who walked in? Hazel McCallion. Hmm. And I stopped in my tracks and paid tribute immediately to Hazel, the champion of economic development, when 1,200 people stood up, gave Hazel McCallion a a standing ovation. Well, Scott, Hmm. I, I gave that speech, and I elbowed my way after this speech to sit with Hazel. And she said to me, Foxy, if your speech was boring, I was going to grab a hot dog and go and watch the Bills game on TV. (laughs) It was on a Sunday. It was on a Sunday. It was very, very fitting. um, She got it done. You talk about inspiring. She was an advocate, an advocate for moving process quickly and efficient. She had no time for government delay, government red tape. And and you know the other thing? She was so successful in municipal politics. And I I think that I'm not sure if she would have been successful uh, beyond in Ontario or in provincial or or federal because, you know, uh, she wasn't party affiliated. Hmm. And, And Scott, you and I have talked about this before. I, I really feel that we've we've got a problem right now in North America with partisan po- party politics. Yeah. And Hazel was different. If if a good idea came, it didn't matter from which party. It could be green. It could be orange. It could be red. It could be blue. If it was a good idea for Mississauga or for the province of Ontario, she would say, "Let's." Do it because it's good for Ontario. So she, you know, you, she was extremely special. You bring up a valid point, and I have this written down in front of me as my next question. In quotes, uh, she got it done. Uh, you know, we so much live in the world now where it's all show, no go. It's all talk, no action. It's fake it until you make it. And she would challenge you and debate you. I heard she was quite frank, and if she didn't agree, boy, she let you know. But once the decision was made, she got it done. That's exactly what you said. Why? Where is that? Why do we not have that anymore? Why? Well, why is it in, in short supply? She had two phrases that were not in her vocabulary, the word no and the word can't. Hmm. And she wasn't one to uh, uh, listen to herself speak. She had a great memory, and she also had what's not so common today. She had common sense. But when, when Hmm. there was an idea put forward, nobody researched the idea more than Hazel McCallion. And she would get all her lieutenants to search the the facts of the ideas moving forward. Now, if she believed that the idea was good, no matter who put it forth, she was no nonsense, no delays, no red tape. Let's move this forward. And And, you know, being a champion of economic development, she got it, Scott, because, you know, economic development is so important because – when there's economic development, we have a better city. We have better parks. We have better roads. We have better rinks. We have better basketball courts. And she knew that economic development meant we need to attract business to Mississauga. And you know, Scott, you go through Mississauga, it's absolutely booming. Yeah. She also realized that we can grow the economy by making it better for existing companies to grow. And, in, in, you know, some of your best customers are your existing customers growing, and she got it. But taking the words no 
and can't and yes but out of her vocabulary made for a successful person that we know in Hazel McCallion. She was just tremendously inspiring. These characteristics would suit any politician well. Now we've got a woman in politics at a time when there weren't many, if any. Uh, But that didn't seem to matter for her. No, no, that really didn't matter. You know, she uh, she was a great leader. She was a trailblazer for women. But it, it really didn't matter, Scott, because yeah. if there was a good idea, it was, it was no nonsense. She was an advocate for moving process efficiently. And that's uh, Hazel, when you think about it. Less show, more go. Um, how do you think she'll be remembered? Will, do you think that, that politicians will, will take a page out of her book? She'll never be forgotten. She will never, ever be forgotten because of some of the things that we just talked about. I'll give you an example. We were at an event in February 2020, just before the pandemic hit, and we were with uh, Bonnie Crombie, who was on your show, the current mayor of Mississauga. She called her over, and what a memory Hazel had. She said, "Uh, Mayor, you need to meet this guy. He has an injection molding plant in Mississauga, where they make the world-famous Fox 40 whistle. And she had that memory, like, like really and truly, why <laughs> would she know me from a load of bricks? But she was so proud of the fact that we have one of our injection molding plants in her town, Mississauga, and she wanted to share that information with the current mayor, Bonnie Crombie. Ron Foxcroft with us, uh, Fox 40 World, creator of the Fox 40 Whistle, 40 Ways to uh, 40 Ways of the Fox and Fluke Transport. Uh, you know all the accreditation. And, of course, speaking of uh, Hurricane Hazel McCallion and her legacy, passing away this weekend at the age of 101. Ron, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Hazel will never be forgotten. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news is Scott Radley's show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, reading one of your topics today, we were talking about this with friends over the weekend, and I was surprised because usually it's those that have got our heads in this sort of thing that talk about it. The average citizen just probably doesn't care. Uh, but this resonated with some friends ahead of the uh, CRA says it isn't worth chasing up to $15 billion. I thought it was like closer to $27 billion, which is oddly enough what they're asking for the premiers uh, from the pro- uh, from the feds for uh, for help with the health care system. Uh, they, they're not going after those. Uh, who may be ineligible re- uh, recipients, and a lot of people seem to be kind of cranky about this. Um, really, there really? doesn't seem there there doesn't seem to be any checks and balances. I, I I equate this to the dental system, which is the same way. Uh, the money goes out, and whatever you want to spend it on, you can spend it on. And if that's food on the table, and that's what you need more, you can do that. Um, many will say, well, at least people who need the money are getting some sort of money for something, and and maybe that's accurate, but that doesn't mean it's a plan, like a dental plan of any way. Where do you think this is going? Do you think this is a weather balloon, and that people make it uh, enough stink that they'll do something to make it look like they're trying to collect some of it oh probably but scott at this point we know what they think of this i mean uh, 15 billion dollars is it's it's a staggering amount of money it really is like we we hear it seems maybe not that much now because we're now talking about you know budget deficits of a trillion a debts of a trillion three or something so if what's 15 billion dollars they say, I mean, typically they, they sort of point to a hospital being able to be built for a billion. So we've just said 15 billion, apparently something in that range went to people who were ineligible, but yeah, whatever. I mean, Scott, honestly, if you had a little side hustle that you were doing, let's say, let's say you, you took photos as a side gig on, on weekends, you took wedding photos and you made $5,000 this year making your doing your wedding photos and you didn't claim that on your income tax and they found out about that. What do you think the chances are that the CRA is going to say, oh, you know what? It's not worth it. They will be on you like in a second to find out why you didn't claim your 5000 and to pay on that. Um, I mean, 15 billion, eh, yeah. who cares? 
I I had heard and experts have said, uh, economists and such uh, business profs, that this could have been very easily done uh, through the Employment Insurance Act. Um, because the system's already set up, it's already there, and more importantly, you can keep track of it and then pull back what you need after income tax. Um, the money that was sent out during the pandemic, those were all brand new programs that were set up and came with a lot of fanfare and a lot of news conferences and such. And at the end of the day, you, you, you've spent a lot of money setting up a system that really isn't that effective. When you had one, you could have piggybacked on that. However, with that, you don't get the announcements to make, like, look, we're going to do all this, we're going to do all this, we, you know, we've, as opposed to setting up the CERB program or this program or that program. It could have been done a lot more efficiently. Scott, someone pointed this out today. I saw this online, so it's not an original idea, but someone pointed out that the Emergencies Act was brought in because the government said that the convoy was causing $3.9 billion in economic loss, and that was unbelievably crucial to maintain the sanctity or whatever of our country. And I'm not disputing that. But if we had to bring in the Emergencies Act for $3.9 because that was that important, Hmm. how do we then throw up our hands at $15 and say it's not worth the hassle? I just, it just, it makes no sense. And worst of all, it seems so cavalier towards people who work hard, who went through the pandemic, who kept working, who did all this stuff and paid their taxes. And those taxes led to that 15 billion. That 15 billion doesn't appear out of thin air. That's tax dollars. And it's so cavalier then to say to someone who has paid a lot of taxes, because we do in this country, that it's not a big deal. You know what? It is a big deal. Scott, break it down to uh, 38 million people in this country, how much each of us was on the hook for if you break down 15 billion, and then take a family of four and ask me if that family of four couldn't use that money since all we hear about, all we hear about these days is, well, we're looking out for the middle class. Well, the middle yeah. class are the ones who are now out that money and we don't seem to give a whoop. It is entirely infuriating because it's only the people who live in the glass houses on the high hills who are getting government checks and everything else that seem to think this is not worth chasing. Scott Radley coming up after the uh, 6 o'clock news. You can hear him on the Scott Radley Show. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator CRA and chasing billions that went out in pandemic payments that shouldn't have, right or wrong. Uh, Scott, have yourself a great show. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to uh, Will Erskine and Tom McKay. Also, uh, Dave Woodard in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word from Mr. Lowe. Rest in peace, Hurricane Hazel. If you ever had became prime minister... Our nation would be firing on all cylinders now. 